Welcome to Journey with Purpose, Episode 4. I'm your host, Randy Plummel. Today we speak with Professor Karen Kuby, who focuses on housing justice. I was interested in hearing what she had to say about housing and housing abundance, since the cost of housing has risen dramatically. And as of this podcast, it is significantly contributing to our current high inflation, as housing production hasn't met the demand of all the people who need homes. Before we get to the interview, I want to ask a favor. We are an independent publisher of both this podcast and the same named pamphlet, Journey with Purpose. We implore you to go to jwp.news and purchase a pamphlet or donate to the show. When you buy a pamphlet, which is only a few dollars, you not only support independent storytelling, but you can help get them out of my house, which contributes to improved happiness all around. And now, here's our interview with Karen Kuby. Hi, I'm Karen Kuby. I'm currently in Brooklyn, New York, and um, my current position is in Toronto at the University of Toronto. I'm an assistant professor of architecture focused on housing justice. When I think about housing justice, I think about something that certainly doesn't have one definition, but I lean on my work in on different definitions, both historical and present. The main one that I've been leaning on lately is the National Homes Guarantee, which is part of what I think is a really important and exciting movement to think about really achieving housing justice, not just tinkering around the edges, making housing a little bit more affordable, lowering homelessness a little bit, increasing quality a little bit, but really saying, okay, what would it take to really achieve housing justice nationally for everyone? And what does that mean? The National Homes Guarantee was produced a few years ago. A reason why I really like it is because of how it was developed, which was through a multiracial coalition of more than a million grassroots leaders. Their goal is to really end the housing crisis in the United States. And they talk about it in a holistic way. One of their main points is building 12 million social housing units. That means homelessness is gone. It means the housing crisis is over. Everyone has the right to housing. Everyone is adequately housed in the United States. I want to clarify that it's 12 million social housing units, and they would be green as well. It's not just numbers, but I want to emphasize that they're calling for specifically green social housing, meaning that it's permanently affordable, resident-controlled, etc. So that's important. To think about scale, maybe I'll tell you about a design project I work on that drew on the national homes guarantee and the idea of 12 million, which is hard to comprehend. And we asked, what would this look like in the neighborhood that we were working in? And so looking at a neighborhood scale, I was working with a team on a project called Aging Against the Machine. And this was working mostly on housing, but also related built environment upgrades in West Oakland, California, across the bay from San Francisco, an historically Black neighborhood where there's high need. There's been decades of disinvestment, the legacies of redlining, 
a highway running through it, all of these things that you see in neighborhoods like it across America, and also phenomenal histories of fights for racial environmental justice. Broadly, our project, Aging Against the Machine, the machine being neoliberalism that makes us atomized, especially as we get older and thinking about ways that we can come together, looking at what would be changes in the built environment that would help produce better lives for older people. We thought about what would the National Homes Guarantee look like in West Oakland? What would it take to end the housing crisis in West Oakland? And doing quick math, we realized it would be 1,600 units of green social housing. And then we looked at the map and we looked specifically at different parcels that were either vacant or for other reasons would be really great to build on and would not displace anyone. We put together a general scheme for the neighborhood and then zoomed into design. And it doesn't look crazy. <laughs> if you took a look at the physical model we made of the existing fabric with 1,600 new green social housing apartments in it, it's really not that big a deal. It wouldn't scare anyone. It doesn't look like you're turning West Oakland into Shanghai or Dubai or something totally alien. It was surprising, actually, as designers to see that it doesn't change the neighborhood that much. So that was just one experiment, and it's just, you know, it's a speculative design. But it shows, at least in this case, that the idea of 12 million new homes, and I think also talking about renovating homes, which is critical, is achievable in a lot of ways. Why is this not happening? One thing that I focus on in my work as a designer is I think we have a collective failure of imagination. I think that ending the housing crisis and producing and renovating as much green social housing as we need is extremely achievable. And I think we can list economic, political barriers that are extremely real and some other economics and political experts could go into those. But I think what I want to focus on and what I have been focusing on is that it's very hard for people to imagine what that would look like and that it is possible. And I think the reason is that we have been subject to propaganda for many, many years, for decades, since the Cold War, basically, that says, ah, no, social housing doesn't work in the United States. It's only for somewhere like Sweden. Forget about it. It'll never work. And of course, we know that public housing in this country has been chronically defunded. I don't know of any place that has solved the housing crisis through the market solely. Certainly the market plays a part, but we know that government intervention, we know that large scale social housing is how it works in places where the vast majority of people are, are properly housed. What we're trying to do with this work is to work with community groups that are doing racial justice work, that are doing housing justice work, and help to visualize what would this look like? Okay, you have this idea. There's an idea from the Black Panthers. There's also a policy to produce a, the California Housing Authority. So we said, what if, what if this kind of idea from the 70s mixed with this policy, what would that look like? And we showed through a series, I'm talking now again about Aging Against the Machine, which was part of the Reset Towards the New Commons exhibition at the Center for Architecture in New York. We showed through a series of seven proposals 
what this could look like at different scales from the 1600 units that I talked to you about, all the way down to smaller scale interventions inside someone's home. I believe this is possible, and I believe of the barriers that exist, the failure of imagination might be the most important thing to address. And I think that's an area where architects have a lot to contribute. I love that word abundance. I think there has been a shift recently, maybe in the last decade or so. There's been a shift to, I love the idea of thinking of abundance. I think that sounds right. And I think it's in the culture. There are great connections between thinking bigger and more holistically about what we could do in terms of social housing in the United States, both nationally and a lot of really exciting experiments going on in different ways in different states and cities across the country. People in climate work are saying, yes, we know there are a lot of problems. There's a lot of people working on the problems. Let's work together to envision what a, a future looks like where we win and then work toward it together. And then specifically in terms of housing, yes, we do need to look at places like Vienna. There's a lot of really good lessons from places that have invested in social housing in different ways over the long term, and we need to do that. There are also really important case studies and lessons in our own backyards and in our own histories, and we will always need many different kinds of housing. People need different kinds of housing throughout their lives. People have different needs. There's so many, so many different needs per person or per family or household and also over time for anyone. A project that I did many years ago was, was really illuminating. This was about a decade ago. I co-produced a program called An Inventory of What's Possible. And what we were reacting to is something that was happening in New York but something that happens all over the place, where there's this clamoring for so-called new ideas in housing. And of course, that's fine. <laughs> it's fine to have new ideas. Let's also look at what's been tested for decades, in this case, in our own city in New York. And so specifically, we are looking at things like worker co-ops in the Bronx. We were looking at public housing. We were looking at examples of sweat equity being used in the process. And so looking at, I think in our own backyard, we can find examples of different kinds of models that result in permanent affordability and resident control. I think another really important thing that's happening now is the Community Service Society, which is a New York uh, nonprofit, has put out something called Pathways to Social Housing in New York, um, presenting 20 policy proposals. And just like what we were doing in that program, this is not pie in the sky, this is not out from nowhere, but this is looking at, okay, what has worked historically? What are models that are proven and maybe dusty or <laughs> maybe a little dated? And let's build on that. Let's see What's the new version of a particular affordable housing program like Michelama, which New Yorkers will know used to exist, and we could reinstate in any way? So I think in some of these, certainly with single room occupancy, it's important to separate management failures with architectural ones. I think the history of single room occupancy, which was very 
prevalent in places like New York, and it was the primary way, especially for single men, to have very cheap accommodations. An issue now is, let's say you have only $500 a month to spend on housing. Well, you're out of luck in New York, right? You, you can have public housing, or you can probably be in an overcrowded private apartment. And long story short, those are basically the only two options. So I think it's important to think critically about if we have a model that used to exist and then it went away, looking carefully about why did it go away? What are the exact conditions and what should we blame for its so-called failure and what can we learn and what can we bring back or shift in, in our current time? So I think when we're talking about different housing typologies and we're talking about typologies that don't exist very much anymore in the States, but used to, like boarding houses, single room occupancy, we start to think about what is a minimum standard. We can look at the right to housing as a global concept since at least 1948 in the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights. What does that mean? And that is a complicated thing that has been worked on for a very long time. And I think that we in the United States could benefit from looking at international frameworks. And specifically, I think we should look at the way that the United Nations defines the right to housing. And that is through seven elements, which are security of tenure, availability of services, affordability, habitability, accessibility, location, and cultural adequacy. That doesn't say it's X square feet. That's something that policy people have to figure out and bless them for doing that. But many people are very surprised to find out, for instance, that cultural adequacy is part of this. Many people who I know, who maybe even people who think of themselves as extremely progressive designers, don't realize that's actually fundamental and has been for a long time internationally. Also, the idea of location, the fact that it's not enough to make sure someone has any old place to live, but is it close to work? Is it close to your family? Is it close to, you know, these other things? So I think this holistic approach to what is adequate housing is something that we can really lean on. And then there's a question of what does this really look like in a neighborhood? And maybe someone's listening and thinking, ah, is this person thinking about coming and putting a skyscraper right next to me? <laughs> I love my small house. And I think that's a, that's a difficult question. Our housing problem is one of both supply and arguably more importantly, distribution. So not only do we need more housing and more renovated housing, but the fact that there is a massive and increasing homelessness crisis. As we speak, there are migrants waiting for shelter in New York City, even though legally there's a right to shelter here this really awful situation. I'm sure that many listeners will have this experience personally, right? We can see this, right? We can see, oh, wow, my city, my town built a ton of market rate units, but housing's still really expensive. Why is that? 
we need different kinds of housing for people. We also are always going to have cities and suburbs and rural areas in the United States. And we don't need other, everywhere to look like Times Square. That never will be the case and it doesn't need to be the case. I do a lot of work on low-rise density housing, which for our purposes, we define as 30 units or more per acre, which is the baseline for having public transportation. So thinking about all of the benefits that can come from denser, but not necessarily super dense environments. So I think what's important when we think about building and renovating denser housing is that this is not something new. Likely, if you start to dream about your favorite city and your favorite block in that city, if it's Hoskins Terrace, or maybe it's the West Village in New York, or maybe it's some nice row homes in Philadelphia, guess what? That's all, <laughs> That's all dense housing that's at least dense enough to support all these things we're talking about. A lot of it could use retrofits to make it more accessible, but we know that this is not a novel foreign concept. This is something that has been the way that many cities globally have been built for a long time. It's not that new. It's also something that has been tested and has worked in a lot of ways. I think if you look at a model a physical model, or you look at a, a view from the sky and you look at some towers, they look really scary often. But if you're just walking around, guess what? You oftentimes don't notice that a building is 20 stories versus 10 stories. It doesn't matter that much in one's day-to-day -day life. And guess what? You've housed twice as many people. And Speaking of housing for aging, I think it's exciting work by people like Interborough Partners looking at naturally occurring retirement communities or NORCs, looking at how these different typologies, especially something like an elevator building, can be a boon for people as they get older. It's harder to get around. If you live in an elevator building, you're close to the pharmacy, you're close to the grocery store, you're close to your friends, you're close to the library. Suddenly, when it's time and when you need it, it's likely that your quality of life will really remain much higher than if you lived somewhere where there was, it was harder to get around without a car. If we look at how we got here, how we have ended up at a point in time where there's a lot of development in the United States that is dependent on cars, that forces residents to be dependent on cars to get around. There are many aspects of that, but maybe the main one to look at would be post-war America, where the Federal Housing Administration loans made it possible for many families, mostly white families, to have access to loans for single-family homes. And this jumpstarts the production of suburbia as we know it. I want to be clear <laughs> that I believe that some version of suburbia is going to last for a long time, and I think that's okay. I grew up in a college town that isn't technically a suburb, but looks a lot like one. 
And there are a lot of benefits, especially being a kid. There are a lot of real benefits. I don't think it makes sense to say everyone needs to live in a city. I don't think it makes sense to say everyone needs to live in a tower. There are real reasons why a lot of people want to live in single family homes and it works for them. Also, I think it's really important to look at the work of people like June Williamson, who with her colleague has written a series of books on retrofitting suburbia. I don't think it's an either or proposition. In fact, in my hometown, which is Davis, California, we can see that there's been a lot of really good housing development lately. There have been really important steps forward and some of the buildings are something like seven stories and it's really not that big a deal, at least, at least to me. So I think there's a possibility for suburbs to be retrofitted as lots become available, etc. Um, it doesn't mean tearing down all of the single family homes. Sometimes it means adding an accessory dwelling unit in your backyard. Sometimes it means a bigger lot gets a four story development. It doesn't mean changing everything all at once. It means retrofitting. And I don't think we're that far away from suburbs that work better. There are a lot of things that are going well now. This is not just <laughs> something we need to eradicate. And I think there's a lot of good work and more work in this category of ways that suburbs can evolve for the time. Suburbs are changing a lot, right? People aren't waiting for architects or policymakers to make changes. Already suburbs across the country are no longer as white as they used to be. They're much more diverse racially. And people have taken matters into their own hands, legally or illegally, are producing things like accessory dwelling units, which can sometimes be called things like granite flats in their backyard or converting a garage, etc. People are making changes already to help the built environment to keep up with current ways of life and current demographics. And it's up to policymakers and architects, et cetera, to work with communities to get up to speed and to help push forward new proposals or new projects that, that help to even better serve the, the wider public. When we think about the idea of housing being simply a supply problem, we can look at many examples across the country and one that we're familiar with here in New York that has been quite striking has been the transformation of the Greenpoint Williamsburg neighborhood, which is in North Brooklyn and is on the river. And specifically, a huge swath of that along the waterfront was rezoned about 20 years ago from industrial to mixed use. That has meant, mixed use has meant that most of the development has been housing and specifically tall glass towers on the water that are market rate next to their affordable components, which are typically, I believe, 20% of the number of units. It's, it's shifted a little bit, but I believe that was a policy at the time that are just inland and affordable in this case means funded by low-income housing tax credits and set to various income levels. I don't know the exact income levels there, but it typically goes 
up to something like 120% of the average median income. I've lived in New York for 20 years and I have been shocked <laughs> by the rate of change in the built environment in a neighborhood like Long Island City. It is unrecognizable in downtown Brooklyn. It is unrecognizable along the Greenport waterfront, unrecognizable. And we know that something like the Greenport Williamsburg rezoning has resulted in the displacement of thousands of people, maybe even tens of thousands, most of them people of color, especially Latinos. So we know that thousands of new apartments exist now. 20 years later, along the waterfront, we know there are many of those that are set aside as affordable. We also know that thousands of people have been displaced. We can see it's not as simple as, oh, we built a lot of housing. We built a lot of affordable housing. It should be more affordable. In fact, rents have skyrocketed. I personally know a lot of people who have had to move out of that neighborhood because they can no longer afford it. And so I think this brings us back to the question of development without displacement. And I think this shows that policies like rent stabilization, like good cause eviction are really critical so that people can stay in their homes. So the trick always is to figure out how can we have development without displacement? And I'm convinced there is only one answer and I'm convinced that is in broad social housing policies. I'm convinced that is in having protections for residents. It's very important. So I think these things are known, actually, what needs to happen. And so I think it's important not to stop improving cities, making them safer, making them better for everyone, and having policies in place to curtail displacement. This does not mean that neighborhoods should be set in amber. Neighborhoods will always change. There will always be demographic shifts, but the displacement of thousands of people, especially lower income people of color, is immoral and something we need to change. This is not just a policy question. It's not just an economic question. It's a it's an architectural question. It's a built environment question. We spend our lives, if we're lucky enough to be housed, inside housing. So thinking about how those are built, thinking about how the built environment is. Is it safe for kids? Is it safe for older people? Is it accessible to people of different incomes? Do people feel comfortable? Let's take Greenpoint Williamsburg and run it through the right to housing framework of the United Nations, right? Um, security of tenure, no. <laughs> Lots of people got displaced because it wasn't secure. Availability of services, I'm not sure, sure. Affordability, yes, there were some units that were affordable, but certainly not enough. Habitability, ranges, accessibility, definitely some issues there. The newer units would be complying with ADA, but a lot of units in Greenpoint Williamsburg are not. Uh, accessibility for people with disabilities and accessibility can mean a lot of different things. Location's pretty great. <laughs> and uh, cultural adequacy, I don't know. That would be a good question to think about. Does the new development relate to the diversity of cultures that used to exist and that could exist in that neighborhood? I'm not sure. I think it's pretty monolithic and pretty much 
geared toward one kind of resident. So I think that's an interesting test case for some of the things we're talking about. An important thing to remember is that yes, housing is an economics issue. Yes, housing is a political issue, but we do not live in economics. We do not live in policy. We live in architecture. And so I think it's critical to think of about housing justice and the right to housing through the lens of architecture. And that means a few things. It means the physical aspects of housing, definitely the, the sort of classic thing that you probably think of when you think of architecture. It means not only built work, but also design of speculative ideas for housing, which are really critical as we start to imagine and come together and build toward what housing justice would look like in this country. So thinking about architecture as the design of the housing system. So one of my favorite books is In Defense of Housing from a few years ago by David Madden and the late Peter Marcuse, which helps us to remember that the housing system as we know it, which as we've talked about in the States is really privileged towards single family housing. It's really privileged toward ownership. It's privileged toward a landlord model without a lot of protections for renters. It's helpful to remember that the system does not come from nowhere. It's not natural. It was designed and it was designed pretty recently. <laughs> a lot of it is post-war. And because it's been designed, because it's been designed recently, we can redesign it with more equitable and more just aims. We can redesign it so that everyone in the United States and in the world is adequately housed. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm Karen Kuby. I'm calling in from Brooklyn, New York, and I work in Toronto at the University of Toronto. I'm assistant professor in architecture focused on housing justice. I wanna thank Karen for her time and conversation. I think this really shows that while there are some general themes to housing we can all agree on, so much of it is contextual. One important point I want to stress is that abundance doesn't mean replicating Manhattan, Singapore, or Hong Kong level of density. It's about reverting back to a time in American history, not even 100 years ago, where we allowed ourselves the ability to build slightly more denser buildings. You visit almost any small town in America, and you will see what I'm talking about. Three and four story buildings without a front or side yard, often with a business below and homes above. This is a timeless way of building that we allowed ourselves to build. Then we decided that car-focused and distributed homes was the way to go. I think that's fine if you want it, but I think all I'm asking for is for us to be able to build a little bit more denser and build like we used to in our towns again. If you don't want to live like that, I think that's fine. You have lots of options in America. The ramifications are felt in so many different ways. How lonely and disconnected we are. How taking care of older loved ones or younger loved ones are often more difficult because of the one-size-fits-all mentality. And the fact that in some communities, owning at least one car is the entrance fee to life. 
All of this is a choice. All of it is designed. And I believe it's a bad one. Okay, so that's our episode. Thank you to Karen and thank you to the listeners for your time and attention. If you like this, please rate and comment wherever you find finely crafted podcasts. Rating us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts help us get the word out to others and is of no cost to you, dear listener. If you are feeling really generous, go to jwp.news and purchase a few pamphlets. You can use offer code podcast, all lower letters, for free shipping. That's offer code podcast. We're fiercely independent and we want to stay that way. As always, we'll see you on the internets and be well.